You are tuned into another edition of World of Noise, your weekly spin through the Portland music scene as told by the people responsible for making or presenting those sounds to the world. I'm your host, DJ Bob Ham. Later on in the show, it's another installment of our regular feature where I ask an artist to talk about five pieces of music that are important to them and their work. This time around, Parker Hall is in the hot seat. He's the singer-songwriter behind the new project Rules, which is releasing its debut EP Nights and Weekends at a show happening on Thursday the 12th at Bunk Bar. But first... The flag was torn in a Tuesday tug-of-war I was standing there in tatters when the carney took the floor, left myself You're listening to a song from the Book of Travelers, the 2018 album by the modern composer Gabriel Kahane. The music was part of a commission from the Brooklyn Academy of Music in which Kahane took a 9,000-mile train ride around the U.S. one day after the 2016 election. Toward the boarding gate, I found my seat and told a joke to break the ice, but it broke too late. The punchline shattered on the carpet. All our faces turned to shale. Up the on his journey, he conducted interviews with people that were seated with him in the dining car and basically took a litmus test of how Americans sat politically in this fraught time. It's part of an ongoing series of conceptual works that Kahane has undertaken in recent years, including a piece that he wrote for the Oregon Symphony that explored homelessness and poverty which in turn led to him being brought on board as the symphony's creative chair, allowing him to program a series of concerts and to bring along songwriters that he has gotten to know through his work in the indie music world to perform the symphony. His first undertaking as creative chair is happening this weekend on Saturday, December 7th, Sunday the 8th, and Monday the 9th, where Kahane will perform six songs from Book of Travelers, as well as a devastating piece of music from his 2014 album Ambassador, which talks about the death of a black teenager at the hands of a Korean grocery store clerk in L.A., an incident that some say helped fuel the riots that ripped through the city following the Rodney King verdict. When the black and whites arrive I am lifeless on the floor Crumpled dollars in my hand In my hand In my hand I sat down with Kahane this week to talk about his new role and the music he'll be performing at the Oregon Symphony and much more, right here on World of Noise. And they're working at a liquor store I float up to the corner Just above the ice cream and the frozen food Gabriel, tell me how you landed this uh, role as Oregon Symphony's creative chair. When did that happen? Um, okay, so in, in 2016, I was commissioned to write this piece having to do with housing and homelessness, mm-hmm. which became emergency shelter intake form, which was premiered in 2018. Um, I had initial misgivings about taking on a commission for a kind of ivory tower institution dealing with, um, you know, uh, poverty and, and housing insecurity and so on and so forth. But at the same time, really wanted to write for the Oregon Symphony. I knew they were a great orchestra. Um, and I, I sort of, I said yes, not knowing how I was going to handle writing the piece, wrote the piece. We can talk about that later. Um, there was a kind of good connection between the orchestra. I found them 
both uh, extremely genial, extraordinary musicians, um, and uh, just like a great, a great ratio of kindness to quality of musicianship. And there was also that sense of kinship with the staff. And when we came back to record the piece a few months later, which is fairly unusual for a big piece of new music to be recorded only, whatever it was, two or three months later, um, I, I basically said, "Hey, this you know this date went well. Do you want to you want to hang out again?" <laughs> and and both um, Scott, the president, and, and Charles, the VP for artistic planning, said, "Oh, we were kind of thinking the same thing." And and wow. uh, so we sort of built the position from the ground up. Um, as an extension and expansion of some of the things that we felt had gone well in that initial collaboration. You say you were a little nervous about writing for an institution like the symphony. I mean, well, specifically, I I, I had misgivings about um, the idea. You know, I got this call from Charles Calmer, and he said, w- "Would you write us a big piece having to do with housing and homelessness?" And I, while you know. I, I'm a, a politically minded person and spend a lot of time, have spent a lot of time thinking about um, poverty and income inequality. The idea of tackling that subject matter in the context of a symphony orchestra, which optically tends to be perceived as an institution that caters to people of privilege, right. um, I didn't know exactly how to attack it. Um, and ultimately what, what I did was to sort of treat homelessness and housing insecurity as symptoms of broader systemic inequality and to, to try to um, kind of um, implicate the audience in in the, the story that I was telling and to really kind of hold their feet to the fire. Um, and, and also it was really important to me to include voices um, of those who, who have experienced uh, housing insecurity, homelessness, by which I don't just mean setting text of interviews but actually to to have bodies on stage who, who could sort of bear witness to that experience and so we partnered with the Maybell community singers who, who sang the, the last movement and that for me was a way of keeping myself honest in as much as they were going to tell me if the texts that they were singing didn't resonate with their experience and as it happened it seems like I I didn't mess up too badly. They, they, they I think they they felt um, seen and heard, and so I think that was a really rich experience that that was um, I think meaningful for all all parties involved, and that was very much thanks to Monica Hayes, who's the um, the intrepid director of education and outreach. She she went out and found the Maybell Community Singers, and um, so we're we're building both in terms of you know community programs as well as uh, the the more traditional programming on the classical series, the the three large works that I'm going to write over the next couple of seasons, and then the, the two concert series that I'm starting. Right. Tell me a little bit more about the the concert series. These are really exciting. Sure. So the first one, which begins in March, uh, is called Open Music, and. The idea is that I'm inviting someone who has a piece being performed on subscription on the classical series to do a kind of very elaborate conversation slash performance pre-concert talk the night before. Um, And so I called my friend Caroline Shaw and I said, 
So you're going to be doing Partita, the piece for which you won the Pulitzer Prize at the age of 30. Um, <laughs> I think actually Partita was one of the first pieces that, that Charles and I spoke about. He had wanted to do um, the Berio Sinfonia, which involves voices and Roomful of Teeth, for whom Caroline wrote Partita, had done the Berio Sinfonia with the New York Phil. And I, I think maybe I suggested both that he bring them out to do that and that they then also sing Partita, which is a piece for eight unaccompanied voices. So a very unconventional thing to do on a symphonic program. Yeah. But, but you know, Charles has the, has the guts to go there. Um, so the night before, on, on Friday, I think it's March 13th, we're going to kind of dump Caroline's brain onto the stage in, <laughs> in the form of a program that draws from all the things that, that inspire her, from... From J.S. Bach to to Paul Simon to you know Brahms, she she said I really wanted really want there to be this you know, movement for this Brahms piano quartet, which I think is what it must be like to to do cocaine. I've never done cocaine, but I think this is what doing cocaine is like. <laughs> um, and so it's it's kind of like a concert slash conversation, very um, pan genre. Caroline is someone who is extremely fluid in the influences not just the influences that she brings to her work, be it gardening, landscape architecture, egg cookery, but she also quotes liberally from pieces from, from the literature in her music, which is something that I, I love about her. And so we're gonna have this conversation around intertextuality and the idea that uh, the history of music and all art forms is uh, the history of, of artists talking to each other between different works. And so, we're looking at a string quartet of hers where she quotes um, the same Bach chorale that Paul Simon then quotes in American tune. And you're going to hear both of those. Wow. String quartet by Caroline Shaw and a weird arrangement that I made of Paul Simon's American tune that's sort of weirdly inspired by Charles Ives, who also loved to mash things up. Right. Um, so, so basically, that, that's the pilot episode. Um, so there's going to be a lot of exposition. Sometimes the characters are going to be, you know, a little more on the nose than they would be <laughs> when you get into like season three or season right. four. But that's basically the idea. Again, uh, is is demystification. I, I want I want people to come hang out with Caroline for an hour or 90 minutes at the Alberta Rose, and we'll have a conversation. There will be some music, and I, I want them to all leave madly in love with her, and then want to come to the Schnitz on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to to hear her Pulitzer Prize winning piece, Partita. That sounds incredible. And then we'll do it three more times in the 2021 season with different composers. Okay. One of the things I was excited about hearing that you were getting this role as the creative chair for the Oregon Symphony is something that I've uh, often admired about how the symphony puts their programs together, where they do, you know, basically the classical canon pieces that everyone kind of mm-hmm. expects to hear, the stuff that likely sells tickets to these shows. But then they throw in... Uh, you know, very modern pieces. I got to hear them do a, a Messiaen piece mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, and you know they're always you know playing in more even more modern than Messiaen. Yeah. Um, do you think that something like the role that you're doing and these smaller shows is important for the health of this style of music to keep maybe a younger generation engaged with it in some small way? Yeah, I mean, I would say not not just in a small way. I I think. Um, the value of performing work by living composers or by recently deceased composers is twofold. One, it's because this is work that speaks to the moment that we live in, speaks to our lives, um, helps us understand our, our moment more clearly. 
and that's work that should be celebrated. But I think it's also that work by living composers, by living artists, helps us to understand work of those who came before. And I think when programming is really canny, it makes us hear the old and the new in different ways. And um, when it's really, really on point, you hear something um, that was written, you know, 10 years ago, and you hear something that was written 150 years ago, and it feels like they're very much in conversation with each other. And that's something that I'm invested in, having grown up in a house with a lot of classical music, but also with a lot of Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and the Beatles. There was never a distinction in the house that I grew up in between high art and low art. It was all just, you know, the Duke Ellington adage, the two kinds of music, mm-hmm. good music and the other kind. You know, to your question, is it is it important? It's it, it's it's a sine qua non. If we don't do this, it will die out. Um, because if we want people to care about the past, we have to. It has to be a living art form. You've mentioned Paul Simon a couple of times, and I know that someone that you have written for an arrangement for, and you've worked with other you know quote unquote pop artists, um, working with Sufjan Stevens and folks like that as well as doing work like you're doing now with the Oregon Symphony, is that important to you to sort of have a foot in both worlds? I don't know if it's important to me or if it's just that it's it's who I am. Like, I, um, we're all sort of the product to a certain extent of the, the environments that we grew up in. And I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of classical music. And then one day I went into the attic in Rochester, New York, where we were living when I was 13 and discovered my parents' You know, dusty Martin guitars, and and so there were these sort of twin paths of an interest in concert music and a, an interest in in popular music and folk music, and did not set out particularly to have the career that I have. It kind of found me and has continued to evolve as the the kinds of things that interest me have evolved. And I love making music in a lot of different contexts. I love playing by myself in a club with 50 people, and I also love playing in front of an orchestra. Um, and they they are enriching in different ways, and working with other, you know, like doing string arrangements for Sufjan Stevens or doing an arrangement for Paul, Paul Simon, that's enriching in a different way where it's, you know, someone whose craft I deeply admire as a you know as a songwriter i look up to both of them and um getting to do a little small part and you know to to advance their work is something that that i also um relish so i guess i feel i feel really lucky to get to make music in all these different contexts and what i'm hoping with this position with the oregon symphony is to really make the case to the community here that that um the Oregon Symphony is this kind of unsung, hidden jewel uh, that is as good as as basically any orchestra in America, and um, they're they're the nicest people, and they play so beautifully, and they're game for just about anything, and that um, if we sort of uh, play our cards right, I think we can make the case that that you know the Oregon Symphony will be a hub um, in in America for all that is new in music and not not just concert music but also with the collaborations that we're going to do with um with composers and singer songwriters pairing them to to make new work together 
um, or to orchestrate old work into new kind of suites um, to make the case that the you know the greatest songwriters right now are the Schuberts and the and the Hugo Wolfs and the and the Robert Schumanns of of our time. Let's talk about what you'll be performing uh, this weekend with the Oregon Symphony Saturday, yeah. Sunday, and Monday. Uh, part of it is a selection of songs from your most recent album, Book of Travelers. Mm-hmm. Along Grace Island, set ambled down the coast. You drew in sand all the things we'd miss the most. Little love, little love. Uh, is it six songs? Mm-hmm. And- which six? Why did you choose the six that you chose for this? Yeah, so so Book of Travelers is is this record that I made, um, kind of a musical diary of of this nine thousand mile train trip I took just after the twenty sixteen presidential election, where I I went off the grid and I just talked to strangers for two weeks to to try to understand where the body politic was without the um, the mediator of the digital space. And most of the songs that I chose for this orchestral suite are portraits of people I met. Um, it sort of framed the, the outer songs are ones that deal a little bit more with my experience, and then the inner four have to do with passengers I, I encountered. It was basically, there were, there were sort of twin challenges. One was to reduce something that initially as a live performance at BAM, which commissioned Book of Travelers, was actually 60 minutes, of which 35 minutes are on the album. But of course, the album is just piano and voice. Right. So I was condensing down to 22 minutes, what had originally been 60 minutes, at the same time that I was taking something really intimate and spare, piano and voice, no overdubs, to something with 75 musicians. So the question is, like, how do you maintain the intimacy um, and the sort of emotional values of these songs while blowing it up to a much bigger canvas. Was it an easy thing to get people to talk? It was, and, and interestingly, you know, my, my, my dad is a conductor and a pianist, and my mom is a psychologist, and for years, the first decade or so of my career, people would always say, you know, what's it like having a musician for a father? You, he must, you know, have informed so deeply what, what it is that you do, and, and he has, and I adore my father, and... Um, but I realized particularly uh, while working both on, on Book of Travelers and on Emergency Shelter, the, the, the piece that I wrote for, the first piece that I wrote for the Oregon Symphony, how much my mom's work as an empath and as, as a, a clinical psychologist has begun to really, really um, illuminate other channels in, in what I do. And my mom has this kind of uncanny ability to be in a room, like non-professionally, to, to be like at a party talking to a stranger, and and three minutes later that person will be like pouring out their soul to, to her. And I don't think I have that gift, but I think I have like, I have a speck of it. I, you know, I have in my whole body what, what she has maybe like in her, in her left toe. Um, and I think in part because I didn't know at the time that I took the trip I had already written 18 songs that I thought were part of this project I kind of thought I was wrapping things up and I didn't know that I was going to end up mining those conversations for songs um, which I think made 
the nature of our conversations feel less um, ham-fisted or um, mm, loaded. I think I was just talking to strangers, mm-hmm. and I like I. I much prefer to ask the questions than, than to be <laughs> answering the questions. I think I'm, I'm sort of like a frustrated journalist, or am, am entering into this phase of my career where, um, where trying to understand the world more clearly and more deeply, and to try to be more human, like those are my. Um, those are the, the things that, that keep me going. And then it's almost um, incidental that music is the form through which I express the results of those inquiries that I make. Um, so I guess all of that is a very long-winded way of saying I, I, it was not hard to get people talking. There was one person in the entire 13-day trip who kind of shut down. And it was a very... Um, there, there was something extremely poignant about the circumstances of, of that interaction that I, I won't get into. Um, but other other than that, everyone who I talked to was incredibly game. Let's talk now about the other piece of yours that's going to be performed, uh, which is a song from your album, The Ambassador. Uh, what can you tell me about the choice of this particular song and, again, adapting this for a symphony? Yeah, so Empire Liquor Mart um, is kind of the centerpiece of this record called The Ambassador that I made in 2014. The Ambassador is sort of a study of Los Angeles through the lens of its built architecture. It's 10 songs, about 10 buildings. Um, the, sometimes it's the characters who inhabit these buildings, fictional, historical, otherwise. And Empire Liquor Mart is an attempt to tell the story of Latasha Harlins, who was a 15-year-old African-American girl who in uh, 1991, a few days after the beating of Rodney King um, went into the titular liquor store to buy a bottle of orange juice and had two dollars in her hand um, ended up in a disagreement with the shop owner who was a Korean woman and ended up shot dead in the back of the head um, point blank and the, the woman her assailant was given time served and um, had to pay for the funeral arrangements and that was the extent of, of her sentence and a lot of academics argue that that incident was as much an inciting event in the uprising as was the verdict in, in the, the Rodney King case um, and Just that above the, the ice Rodney cream King verdict sort of conveniently told a black-white story when, in fact, there, there was all this sort of intra-ethnic tension in various communities in Los Angeles leading up to, um, to the uprising. Only days after the trial You could feel the tension rise Here in the street and in the rhythm of despair, of despair. It was war after a while. But that story, the story of Latasha Harlins, came to me via a professor who I had gotten to know at the University of North Carolina, um, 
And this was 2013, which was the year that George Zimmerman was acquitted of killing Trayvon Martin. And then while I was reading the book, uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And I, I just hit a point where reading these accounts of young black kids being put on trial posthumously was just making me crazy. And so what I wanted to do in that song, Empire Liquor Mart, was to try to kind of celebrate the innocence and the 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 um, childhood of this girl who um, whose family had done this very prototypical or ar- archetypal um, you know great migration then East St. Louis to Los Angeles looking for a better better life only to encounter all of these various tragedies. And then as a counterpoint to that, the record also deals with the Kennedys and Bobby Kennedy, who was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel, from which the album takes its its name. And there was this like weird connection for me between the Kennedys, who are, who are like the poster children of privilege, and the Harlins family, who everywhere they looked got got a raw deal. Um, and I had read this, um, this Baudrillard essay about how the best way to see Los Angeles is in a jet um, landing at LAX at night when you see the, the lights lit, you know, of the LA basin, thousands and thousands of, of lights. And then I'd also read elsewhere that during the riots or the uprising, you could see from planes, you could see both the fires raging and the all the electric lights of the city, which is where I came to this phrase, now two kinds of light from fires and fixtures, they fill the sky. And... Uh, and I was trying to find some kind of solace in in this tragedy of this girl. Um, I mean, there there is no solace. It's just terrible. Right. Um, but I wrote this kind of first person stream of consciousness monologue where she dies and she starts floating up and floating up and floating up and floating up until she's able to kind of see the uprising unfold from you know from the heavens and that there is some some kind of beauty in seeing seeing that that sort of like um terror terrifying beauty of of all of that unfolding so anyway it's a big long nine minute song and um it remains something that that i um i feel connected to um both artistically and politically and I had this opportunity to make uh, a big full orchestra. I mean, it's already on on the album. It's already a, a fairly expansive. It's got a twelve person string section and a right. brass quintet and bass and drums and some programming and so on and so forth. But it felt like the kind of thing that could bear, un- unlike with Book of Travelers, where it's these tiny, tiny, delicate jewel jewel boxes of songs. Empire Liquor Mart feels like it's calling out to have a big orchestra, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, and sadly, the song remains as apposite today as it was then, because black kids are still getting killed, and there's no accountability. And um, so, I'll keep singing that song until until there's some justice. Is it important for you to work sort of conceptually like this, as you've done with the Ambassador and Book of Travelers? Is that uh, good for your brain in some way to just like have a focal point? I think that started for me when I was actually when I was working with Sufyan 
um, on string arrangements and I would go over to his studio and I realized I, I met him in I think 2006 or 2007 and at some point he just said point blank he's like yeah I just I just treat being a songwriter as a job or like school and I just give myself assignments and I keep doing the assignments until they're done so it'll be you know write 50 songs about this subject or write 30 songs about this subject mm -hmm. and the the sheer volume of material that that guy makes I mean the the number of beautiful finished songs that no one has ever heard that are just sitting on hard drives it's it's insane it's totally bonkers <laughs> he's like he is the hardest working one of the hardest working people I've ever met and I think it was the thing that I learned from him was to be less precious and more workmanlike about being an artist that you just go to work you go to work right. do your thing work till the end of the day stop rinse wash repeat um, so I think that that sort of conceptual approach blossomed out of uh, my friendship with him and, and working with him um, I think there's also just been this I was a very bad student in school I failed out of high school squeaked through college um, but I think began to realize in in my late 20s that I loved being a student mm -hmm. and that I loved to read and that I loved to try to understand the world um, through a historical lens to understand the present through the past to understand the present through the future um, to understand the future through the through the present um, and so this kind of journalistic approach to to being an artist felt increasingly natural as was the case with emergency shelter for you know for the Oregon Symphony it's not the only way that I work but I think that I like to have a big canvas and more and more I'm trying to um, to let myself really stretch out with big you know, big ideas and meditate on them for a long time to do, um, to make sure that I, I am present as a, you know, as a vulnerable human, cause I don't want to hide behind research. Um, the, you know, the writers who I admire the most are the writers whose work kind of skirts genre, people like Ann Carson, people like the German novelist, if you can call him a novelist, W.G. Zabald, where many of their books or Ben Lerner whose new new novel The Topeka School kind of falls into this category where you're like is it memoir is it essay is it is it historiography and I'm trying to figure out the ways to do that in music that kind of touch all the things um, and I think sometimes having a big header at the top of the page is helpful <laughs> for me well Gabriel Kahane thank you so much for speaking with me today hey, this has been wonderful it has been a pleasure Again, Gabriel Kahane will be performing this coming weekend on Saturday, December 7th through Monday, December 9th with the Oregon Symphony. Visit orsymphony.org for more information and to grab tickets to one of their performances. Up next on World of Noise, it's another chance for me to grill a local artist about five songs that they've picked as being important or influential to their work. This time around, I'm joined by Parker Hall. He's a lifelong musician who grew up studying jazz drums and eventually landing at Oberlin Conservatory, where he was mentored by the great percussionist Billy Hart. And while he has cut his teeth here in his hometown of Portland playing jazz gigs, he's been getting more recognition of late for his work with indie bands like Dan Dan, and a new project where he is writing and recording his own material under the name Rules. I 
church will make its professional debut next Thursday, December 12th, with a show at Bunk Bar to celebrate the release of the new EP called Nights and Weekends. But before he gets there, he has to talk to me about the five songs he chose to highlight right here on World of Noise. So we're talking about the five songs that you picked as being uh, influential to you, inspirational thing, songs that you love. Um, and the first one that was on your list was These Days, which is a song perhaps best known for the cover that was recorded by the Velvet Underground singer Nico, but you chose a version by its songwriter Jackson Brown, which was uh, yeah. recorded live in 2004. About the things that I forgot to do. Mm-hmm. So, what what was it about this song in particular? Uh, I re- I have like vivid memories of growing up, like riding in my dad's car, listening to Jackson Brown. Okay. Um, he was a he was really into sort of like the Carlos Santana, like not quite Grateful Dead, but like the jammy seventies, like Journey, you know, all those bands. Okay. But for whatever reason, like he loved. I mean, I don't really consider Jackson Brown to be like a part of that necessarily. I mean, there's kind of that like '70s LA thing going on separately, I guess. Yeah, that's like the whole Laurel Canyon scene yeah, with Joni yeah. Mitchell and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and those yeah, guys. And, and he, he was kind of associated with that. True, a true. Bit. Yeah, yeah, and he was a big Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young guy. Right. Um, uh, my dad was. So oh. I, I just remember like growing up, listening to like all those classic Jackson Brown records. And then I remember this came out, and he did this whole like solo tour where he was just playing all these songs acoustically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's done like two of these records now, but this was the first one. And uh, I think my parents like went to the tour, but my dad came back with this CD, and I remember hearing all these songs, and it was like I'd heard them for the first time. Like, there's something about like the stripped down, you know, just him and a guitar. You really sort of realize like the magic mm-hmm. in his songwriting. Um, and, and that's something that I always really sort of aspired to, like being able to write a song that um, doesn't really need much to be a good song, you know, like right. kind of just like words, chords, that's it. One of the so, songs that's really adaptable to different mediums and different genres. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, and that's the other thing about this song that I love so much is that it can be done so many different ways and it has been done so many different ways. Right. Um, but then to hear it like done by the songwriter... And actually, I think he told a story about it. Like each song on this record has like a, an intro story. Okay. So you can kind of listen through. And I think, um, you know, the actual songs are cut up so that you don't have to like listen to the intros to every song when you listen to it. But <laughs> okay. uh, on this, he tells a story about like writing this song and and get, getting it produced, like the Velvet Underground version, having it be produced and remembering that like in hindsight that he had told them that they could use it in a movie. And so he's at the movie theater and he's like watching this movie and he's like, man, I used to play just like that. <laughs> and then like, sure enough, it was him like actually, you know, in the movie theater, like his his guitar playing on that like record. Wow. He like totally forgot that they, he told them they could use it. <laughs> and then he kind of like launches into this. But uh, but yeah, I always sort of envied that kind of songwriting, like his 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 ability to use words um, to really like uh, 
tell, I mean, every song uses words to tell a story, but he really kind of takes you with him mm-hmm. emotionally. Um, and that's something I really sort of aspire to in my songwriting. So were you listening to a lot of jazz then as you were growing up when you started playing drums? Or were you thinking as you were playing drums, like maybe I'll be in a rock band or a pop band or something? So my, um, I, I just wanted to play drum set like with anyone once by the time I got a drum set. So for like my first six years or something playing drums, I, I only owned a snare drum. I know it sounds really weird, but like. It's not that weird, actually. Yeah. I was a kid, like, you know, like, they don't... Yeah. My parents weren't going to give me a drum set when I was, like, six. Yeah. Um, But even for some, like, uh, early people learning to play drums for the first time that they just start off on one like practice pad or yeah like and that's that, exactly snare, i so. still have my first practice pad like it's pretty it's super old and like totally worn out but um but yeah yeah so that's what i did i like you know every some kids go to karate every saturday i went to drum lessons okay and then i remember like in fourth or fifth grade we did the recorder thing you know like kids have to learn recorder yeah. and then uh, we finally like picked our instruments and I was like, well, obviously I'm going to play drums cause I like can already play drums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being in like this band room and, and walking in like during lunchtime to, I don't even know what I was doing in there. And there were these like older kids playing a couple of them playing guitar, like someone playing bass, some like kids just like who sounded terrible on trumpet, like doing some like weird, you know, like early two or yeah, early 2000s, like, late 90s, like, ska. Ah, uh, okay. You know, like, playing Sublime <laughs> or something. And I I think I, like, sat in on drums, and it was, like, I just remember feeling this rush that, like, oh, my God, I'm playing music with other people. And, and that, like, th- that feeling just, it was, I was totally sold, like, from that moment. I just, like, knew that all I wanted to do was play music with people. Yeah, so at that time, like, they were listening to a lot of, it was people who played like horns and people who played like guitar and and you know bass and stuff and and we all kind of like our impetus for playing together was that we were all in jazz band together mm-hmm. and it just like kind of happened that a bunch of us in um I grew up in Portland so this was in southwest portland a bunch of us like ended up with really like all our teachers played jazz professionally around town um okay. and so we just kind of ended up uh hanging out with those people and going to like mel brown jazz camp and like playing gig i mean i was playing gigs playing jazz gigs like starting at like 14 like 14 15 wow um and like all the way through high school so yeah so i was listening to jazz like because i wanted to play play more with my friends and at the time like I think some kids go like metal, some kids go jazz, but like there's this thing in high school where if you're like really into music, you want to be like the shreddiest, like <laughs> most insane player. Yeah. So like that was my, all, me and my friends all like wanted to play jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like now, man, like half of the people I went to high school with no, don't play jazz anymore, sure. but they play other stuff. Um, and you're not yeah. playing jazz anymore either, at least not in this project rules. Not in this project. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I play a little bit. A little bit of drums around town, but... Okay. Um, well, jazz is, a, is... Now that we're talking about jazz, we can move into the second song that you chose, oh, yeah. which was uh, John Coltrane's After the Rain. Mm-hmm. 
I think this is kind of like one of my Coltrane deep cuts. A lot okay. of people, and and I think impressions is at least in like the as a sta- as a jazz standard, it's a pretty um, well known tune. And, yeah, and I feel like people yeah. know the record because of that tune. That would make sense. Yeah, but it's like so. I mean, it's also the name of the record. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, this tune I remember hearing it um, early on when I got into jazz. So it actually is kind of a nice segue because I remember being like on a bus in middle school or high school or something, and like someone, you know, you hear your your music nerd friends like start to talk about like train and like you have to figure out who the hell train is <laughs> and you're like in eighth grade like right. in the ipod era like right. you can't yeah you're like on limewire like train drops <laughs> like of spelling it. yeah what? yeah yeah so i i remember uh hearing this it like on my cd player or something on the bus and, and just thinking it was like the most insane most beautiful tune i'd ever heard okay and it's got this kind of like shimmering quality um it's it's like kind of shimmering piano and then him just playing over the top of it and there's not really much else going on there's like i think some maybe elvin's playing like some brushes i think so yeah but like not it's very quiet um and i always just every time um i wake up in the morning it's one of those like misty fall days i think of this tune as you said you were playing jazz gigs in your teens around town and Mm -hmm. then you eventually took off to college to oberlin conservatory yeah. I don't know if that's college. There's at least music school or whatever. There's you... like a college side and a conservatory side, and they're on the same campus, but they're like separate schools. I see. Okay. So like you, basically like I went to normal, like my college experience was totally normal because the dorms and everything are like both college students and conservatory students. Okay. Which I kind of wanted because if you just go to music school, that's like a lot of nerds in one place. It's like, <laughs> it's like a lot. Like it, it's a little much. Right. Um, Especially, and not to talk down about classical musicians, but like. And there's hundreds of like opera singers around you and no yeah. one else like everyone's going to bed at like 8 p.m. It just gets a little so I wanted to like go somewhere that had both. But okay. yeah, so I, I went to uh, to Oberlin and I was on the music school side um, and yeah, I was studying jazz drums. That was and you were studying with Billy Hart, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is uh, incredible. He's an incredible <laughs> drummer. You know, that's yeah. just one of my one of my favorites. Yeah, Billy was uh, a really magical is a really magical person um and was a was a huge influence on me in like a really important i think time in my musical life um he is just such a magician Mm -hmm. and so being able to sit the the way he did lessons was kind of weird he would um he was only in town for like two or three days every like two weeks because he lived in new jersey and was still touring like all the time right um and so he would show up and the way he did lessons was like you could sign up for like an hour um or you know three hours for like the three weeks of worth of lessons you needed to get or you could just like show up and he had a drum studio that was i don't know probably twice the size of this studio so like i don't know 20 feet by 20 feet okay with three drum sets and basically you just go and when he was there like when i wasn't in class that was just like sitting there with like five other drummers just like basically just getting lessons wow so it's this crazy thing where like lessons were super immersive i mean you basically just like when he was in town like all the drummers disappeared and just like hung out with him um and there weren't very many of us there were only like i don't know 10 or 15 of us total so okay and he was the only drum teacher like drum faculty member there so i remember at the end of my audition this is kind of just like a, a crazy billy story but he's just such an he's such a like a yogi type dude 
I, I finished my audition and he looked at me and was like, how do you think that went? Which is just such a weird thing to ask like a nervous 17 year old. Totally. About, like a college audition. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know, like, okay, but I didn't think I did this well and blah, blah, blah. And he, and he just like looked at me and went like, man, if you were so good, you'd be the teacher and I would be the student. And I was just like, whoa, this guy. <laughs> so I thought that I took that like as kind of an insult. I like walked out of there yeah. and, and was like, oh, I've got to get out of here like as soon as possible. I was in like the middle of Ohio in the middle of winter. I'm like from Portland. I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and uh, and then like I got in and went there and like it, it, in hindsight, like that was him being really nice. But at the okay. time I was like, this guy, he just like messes the people's heads, you know. Let's move on to the next song that you chose, and you chose Farewell Transmission, which is the first song on the 2003 album by Songs Ohio, which yeah. was called Magnolia Electric Company, which is the name that uh, Jason Molina took on after mm-hmm. that as part of his projects. Uh, the late Jason Molina, I should say. Rest in peace. The whole place is dark. Was this something that you heard by the time you had returned to Portland or were you still in school at this time? Yeah, yeah, I heard. So I was, um, I, it's funny, we talked so much about jazz, but uh, throughout high school, I also got started to get more and more into sort of like, well, I guess I'd call it indie rock. Sure. But that's, yeah. It's, it's not a good really shorthand for it, unfortunately. At the time that, yeah, that yeah. was the, what everyone was calling it. Right. Um, so, yeah, so by the time I got to Oberlin, I had found this record and I really, really loved it. And I didn't realize that he, uh, I think he either went to Oberlin or was like from Lorraine, which is like the county in Ohio. I think that's right, yeah. Where, yeah, yeah. So it, it was kind of like this, it's a small little rural, rural county in, in Northeast Ohio. And I remember like realizing, you know, that these songs were kind of like, they just felt so natural there it's almost mm-hmm. like like listening to elliot smith in portland you know it's it, there's a good point it yeah. had that same and it, it's it's so hard to describe because you know, with elliot smith you can like point out landmarks or whatever like in songs yeah but for for me like it also just feels so much like this city did at the time mm-hmm. um when i think about like growing up in portland in the 90s like that's the vibe like he totally got the vibe right um and uh jason molina really got the vibe of kind of like decaying rust belt um in, in his music and, it, and it's so powerful um it's it's this crazy thing where this, this song kind of just ran I, I, it's sort of a rambling long um tune that that repeats itself over and over yeah um and yet like you just can't look away like it just it just totally grabs you it has such wide open space yeah now, as you said, you were listening to a lot of music in this vein even before you went to school yeah I take yeah. it. So when did it transition from you like just playing in other bands and playing in jazz groups to you actually writing songs of your own and wanting to perform songs of your own? I feel like I always had this like you know the drummer's dream in like the back of my head of like it being my band or whatever. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I really wanted to be a drummer for so long. Um, and I just remember being on this. I I used to play in in a band that toured a little bit from here and um i remember being in south by southwest in this van we'd shot this like really 
horrible video series for some trust fund like <laughs> label you know like label right. entertainment right. company right. or whatever air quotes um and it was just like absolutely miserable and and um the lead singer of the band was kind of having a like fit about like how miserable this tour had been going and i just remember sitting there and being like i really need my own thing (laughs) (laughs) and i always i'd written songs before i'd I'd written like and arranged some music in college for like a a jazz like jazz music um Mm -hmm. but but i always had been drawn to to lyricism and like to to really good lyrics and so i bought an acoustic guitar and i couldn't play it at all and i like (laughs) (laughs) figured out like how to kind of play it and that's kind of how rules started let's move on to the next song on your list which is i think the big outlier of the five that you picked uh, maybe not in your mind, but at least, you know, to the, the lay person, this would seem a little odd to come out of nowhere, which is the MF Doom song, One Beer. And if you don't know MF Doom, oh, man. If, you don't, if anyone listening doesn't know MF Doom, yeah, if anyone listening doesn't know MF Doom, he's a rapper from the UK, he lives in California. Um, this is a track from his 2004 album, Mmm Food. There's only one beer left. Rappers screaming all in our ears like we're deaf. Tempt me. Do a number on the label, beat up all the MCs and drink them under the table like it's on me. Put it on my tab, kid, however you get there. Foot it, cab it, iron horse it, you leave it on your face, forfeit. Across the mic, hold it like the heat, he might toss it. Told her, tell him they stole it, he told her he lost it, she told him get off it. Tell me about your interest in MF Doom. <laughs> I got like really into hip hop when I went to college, actually. My friend, one of my friends was from Maryland and was just like all over... 80s and 90s mm-hmm. uh, hip hop and, and into like early 2000s this kind of like avant-garde like offshoot of you know yeah. anything on Stone's Throw basically um so I remember just like going and and him showing me all this stuff and me really thinking like that hip hop was like I don't even know what I thought it was but I, it was not this you know <laughs> wasn't like I, I was only ever hearing stuff at like high school dances you know I was always that right. kid at like the high school dance who like everyone knew all the words and I totally didn't, but if they had played like <laughs> giant steps, I would have like, nah, 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 nah. like I was that guy. It was bad. I was, I think I was wearing like blazer jackets. Like I was really going to be a jazz musician, you know, wow. like I was, yeah, it was fully Very serious, like, fully obnoxious. Like <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I feel like I'm still trying to live down like that portion of my life. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so, uh, but the thing is, like, I have a musically open mind. Like, I'm really into Clearly. all kinds of music. So when I f- when this was first like shown to me, I was just like, oh my god, I'm such an idiot, and I just like dove into the deep end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this track stands out to me for a couple of reasons. One, I just like I love the way that he uh, uses hit like he uses words to create skits. Yeah, and so like the way that he'll uh, like make a rap verse into like you know it starts with him talking about how he only has one beer left in his fridge and then he starts talking about like the way that he's gonna like rob basically like rob fans on tour like it's like like in and out every like just like he's robbing a corner store like that's every show just in and out one two three like yeah i love that that's like he's he's super real about his motives you know like um, i mean it's about like the scene but it's all food Food yeah analogies yeah <laughs> like rap snitch conditions and like 
<laughs> just like there's so many good ones. He's just oh. yeah, he's gone a little bit off the deep end. I feel like in recent years, like yeah, I, his music's a little bit. It's gotten like even more esoteric, I guess I'd say. But um, this era of him and Mad Lib and like. This was when uh, Dilla was still alive. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, it was a few like, years after that he passed away, but yeah, yeah, he was still around. Yeah, that kind of like golden era of LA like stoner hip hop. Mm-hmm. Do you see in any way like any correlation between you know the influence of hip hop on your work and on your recordings as rules or songwriting? Um. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, this music is so, it's so different. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, it's had a huge impact on the way I think about music. Um, and I mean, I still play, I have a hip hop band with my roommate um, called Man Eaters that we're working on a record right now. So, yeah, it's, it has a huge, it's had a huge impact on my drumming. I'll say that. Okay. Like, definitely in college, there was a huge sort of crossover thing happening in the jazz drumming world where, like, a lot, a lot of drummers were really getting into Dilla and really getting into, like, beat break stuff. Um, there's a drummer named Mark Juliana who's kind of famous for doing that, like, right. with David Bowie's record and, like, yeah, he was part all of, the uh, guys that ended up um, making, like, that one Kendrick Lamar record, Jim Pippa Butterfly, right. like, Terrace Martin and all those, like, kind of L.A. guys who, you know, the Thundercat crew and, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. yeah, all those guys. There's, like, so many killer guys that got we're kind of starting to bridge the gap between hip hop and jazz in really cool ways. Yeah. Uh, and so basically like to be trying to, to integrate into like the modern jazz scene as a drummer, you kind of had to start listening to these records too. It's true. So, um, yeah. So that's kind of the other side of that is that like, I got into hip hop for my friend, but also like along the way was like, Oh, I actually really need to know this stuff too. Yeah. To be able to play it. So let's talk about the last song that you chose, which is by the uh, singer-songwriter and producer. He's kind of done everything. Blake Mills is his name. Yeah, so Blake Mills, a guitarist and producer, worked with Fiona Apple, has toured with her a bunch and produced albums by John Legend and Perfume Genius and a whole bunch of a wide array of artists. Yeah. And you chose a song from his self-titled album uh, from 2010, a song called Hey Lover. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your interest in uh, Blake Mills and this song in particular. Uh, so my interest in Blake Mills is like essentially that he has the life that I want to be living. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could say that. Actually, like, I don't really want to be a producer the way he's a producer, but I love everything he's produced mm-hmm. and I love his guitar playing. And I think like his musical outlook is basically identical to mine. I mean, I think that he's a far superior musician and, and much better producer, but, um, but just the way that he seems to like pick apart music um, really aligns with like my vibe. Okay, he's kind of like a jazzy guy that doesn't play jazz. But yeah, I, I I just think that his style is just so magical, and the way that he is able to to get sounds out of like crazy instruments and mm-hmm. sort of like use the studio as an instrument rather than like as this like following the rules 
in the studio. Right. Um, that has a has like left a big impression on me. Um, but in this in the case of this song in particular, it's like a little bit more vain, which is that like I just totally ripped off. I think the opening chords <laughs> and like the first the the melody of like the first verse to this on a song on my EP called Anyhow. No, I mean, uh, it's it's funny how that happens. Like you just right. end up writing a song. So I I wrote this song and then I was like, oh my god, that's Hey Lover. <laughs> but it was like a, it was one of my favorite songs on my EP. So I just <laughs> kind of left it. But yeah. yeah, it's a fun comparison uh, if you want to hear like how his version is significantly better than mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also has slide guitar, which is like a thing I have all over mine mm-hmm. my EP. Um, but yeah, it's a funny thing how that works. So again, uh, Parker Hall's Project Rules is playing. The EP release show for Nights and Weekends is Thursday, December 12th at Bunk Bar. The show starts at 8.30. Also on the bill, Daniel Rossi's Mess and Boreen. Um, what can people look forward to for the show? Are you just playing a lot? Of, we're going to be playing all five songs from the EP, Five I songs imagine. from the EP and a sixth that I think we'll record like in the spring. Okay. Um, and I, I'll write some more tunes and hopefully do another EP this coming year. Well, what beyond uh, rules are you working on? Is there any projects you can hip us to or shows you might have coming up outside of your See, own world? I, I play in a local band called Dan Dan. Um, I play drums. And I think we're going into the studio, and we should be doing some more shows in the spring. Um, that's it. Working on the hip-hop record. That's Wonderful. Just a lot of, like, 90s hip-hop beats going on in my basement right now. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with that, my friend. <laughs> well, Parker Hall, thank you so much for being a World of Noise. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for another installment of World of Noise. My thanks to Parker Hall and Gabriel Kahane for joining me. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast version of the show at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at X-Ray and at World of Noise, thanks for listening.